0: Beginning in in Revelation chapter 4, the structure of this entire book, as you know, I've shared this with you, is built around three groups of seven. And between those groups of seven, there lies an interlude. And it is my belief that those three groups of seven correspond to the three distinct periods of time that Jesus refers to in his only extended teaching on the end times known as the Olivet Discourse. Those three periods of time are Christian history up to the end, and then the last chapter of human history, popularly known as the Great Tribulation, and then the actual return of Christ, which represents the end. Now, in Revelation from chapter 4 forward, I believe that the seven seals correspond to that period of time leading up to the end, Christian history. And then I believe that the seven trumpets correspond to the Great Tribulation, and that the seven bulls Reference the end. And in between all of those, there are interludes that provide more detail to what has come before. So think of it this way. The sevens are like the 30,000-foot view. And then the interludes between the sevens provide detail that is important to know about the previous seven. So long and short of it is today we come to the final seven. We come to the bowls, the bowls of the wrath of God, which means, by my way of reckoning, we have actually come to the end of the world. Now, I shared with you a few weeks ago how I I love end-of-the-world movies, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012. To a degree, uh, the Avengers Infinity War and Endgame are end-of-the-world movies, and they all follow fairly similar plot points don't they there is terror there is chaos there is hopelessness but at some point you just know a plucky band of survivors is going to pull everything together and everything will change you know for instance that at some point in it the villain is going to say I am inevitable and Tony Stark's going to say but I am Iron Man (laughs) snap his fingers The world's going to come back together again. You know it's going to happen because it has to happen. Because a plot of a movie that goes like this, the world unravels, everyone dies, the end, would not be seen by anyone. That's a horrible movie. What sadist would go to see a movie that says the world unravels, everyone dies, the end? No one would. But today we come to the end in Revelation. We come to the bowls of wrath. And in the chapters that we are going to look at today, that awful plot point is going to be followed exactly. Today we're going to see the world completely unravel. Everyone will die. The end. As uncomfortable as it may be to walk through these chapters, we need to do it. Because there is a singular point that these two chapters are making that we need to know for a lot of reasons. So let's build to that point by looking at verse 1 of Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, And the song of the Lamb sang, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for the righteous acts have been revealed. It's important to know this. John... Throughout these two chapters, is going to be given a vision of the future that is informed by his understanding of Israel's past. We see it right off the bat here. Everyone is familiar, in all likelihood, with the book of Exodus and the and the deliverance of the people of Israel from the Red Sea. And as I always say, if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, everyone here has seen the Ten Commandments, in all likelihood. And, and you know what happens. Uh, the, the sea parts, the people of God go through it. On the other side, safely, the sea closes back over the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. And on that side of deliverance... God's people sing a song. It's recorded for us in the book of Exodus. It is the song of Moses. And what we are being given a picture of here through John is of that deliverance. The people have been through the sea of trial, the tribulation, and now they are on the other side. And just as the people of Israel needed to stand still and see the glory of God, the people of God are about to see God's absolute deliverance. And so they sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of the Lamb. Now let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Underline that in your Bible or in your mind. We're going to come back to it. Sanctuary of the tent of witness. In heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, again, remember, John is being given a vision of the future by remembering Israel's past. And that key phrase is important, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, Now frequently, John, throughout the book of Revelation, has referred to what in his mind would have been the throne room of God on earth, which was the Holy of Holies uh, for the Jewish people. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and contained in the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, among other things, but the Ten Commandments. And the lid on top of the ark was known as the mercy seat. That represents God's throne on earth. They believed that the Spirit of God hovered above that. And so he's he's referencing, he's, he's looking back to this sanctuary, but only here it's called the sanctuary of the tent of witness. The witness. Why does he use that particular term here and only here when referring to that particular place in the book of Revelation simply because of those Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments are a witness to the moral law of God to which all mankind is held. If you'll remember the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, We are told that God has made himself known to all people by leaving examples of himself in the created order. One of the arguments for God, an ontological argument, an argument for God is something called the moral argument. Which says that all across humanity there exists a fairly standard moral code in every Uh, Society, For instance, it is wrong to kill. There's a fairly standard moral code that is an evidence of Romans chapter 1 thinking. God has given the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, but everybody is accountable to them. And these angels are coming from that part of the temple, the throne room of God, bearing witness that mankind has thrown off the rule of God, thrown off the, the will of God for all of us and the result is the plagues of judgment and that begins in verse 2 so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful painful sores come uh, came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image and a second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like uh, uh, the blood of a corpse and every living thing That was in the sea died, and the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And then note this we'll come back to it it is what they deserve. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments echoing that it is what? They deserve. The fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues and anguished and they cursed God, the God of heaven, for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, remember, John is being given a vision of the future by looking to Israel's past. And we see some echoes, some images that he would have readily recognized here. For instance, there are very clear echoes of the plagues of judgment on Egypt. There are also echoes of the plagues that are described in the breaking of the seven seals and the breaking of the seven trumpets. All of those find their kind of source material in the plagues that came upon Egypt. Now, it's not a direct recapitulation of those plagues of Egypt, but there's enough similarity to remind John, to remind his readers, to remind us that God has judged sin in a limited fashion. Throughout human history, but when we get to the end of time, that final full judgment with no limits pours out on the world. We actually also see that in how there are no limits that are mentioned in the bowls of judgment that are poured out. For instance, there have been limits before. The famine with the breaking of the third seal Had limits. The uh, poisoning of the waters at the sounding of the third trumpet had limits. But here, the seas and everything in them become contaminated so that everything in the seas dies and all of the rivers and the streams, not just a portion of them, become blood. We are being shown that at the return of Christ, at the end of the world, the entire created order will convulse under the judgment of God being poured out so that that upon which we have depended for life from the moment we dawned on the planet will no longer be able to sustain us. But there is an even more terrifying aspect to the judgment that we are being shown here. The fact that this judgment, the wrath of God, John goes to great pains to tell us, is being experienced personally. Those who have pledged their allegiance to the beast and his kingdom, are horrifically afflicted. They begin to have a kind of earthly foretaste of the hellish agony that awaits them. Yet, we see that they refuse to repent in this agony, even acknowledging by this point in things that it is coming from God. They refuse to repent. Sin has taken its final deadly toll on men and women, and they remain in their rebellion until the bitter end. And what is described here is shockingly horrific. And yet, and here we go, we're reminded just. The angel sings that God has been right to bring these judgments the altar which probably doesn't reference a piece of furniture but represents those in chapter six which were under the altar crying out to God for deliverance they agree with the angel that the the judgments of God were just in other words all of heaven is bearing testimony that all of the horror that is being poured out on the earth is justified that God did the right thing by doing this. Now, unless you're just waiting until lunch gets here, that should shake you up a little bit. God is right to do these things. During the stay-at-home order, I did a, a weekly Facebook Live deal where people would text me questions. Now, actually, they didn't text me questions Um, They did something else. Uh, It was a bunch of internet web magic that I don't understand. Ted set it up. I don't know how to explain it, so I'm going to say they texted me. They They would text these questions in, and I thought about one of those questions when I was preparing for this message, studying this passage. The question was, why is it fair? And that may not have been the exact word, but it was the sentiment. Why is it fair for God to punish sin, and then they said this, which is finite, it's a moment in time, you know, whack my head or hammer, uh, (laughs) whack my thumb with a hammer, say a bad word, moment in time. Why does God punish otherwise good people for eternity for something that is finite? And I explained to them That the confusion stemmed from a fundamental misunderstanding of sin. Listen, sin isn't an action, it's an orientation. Sin is not a momentary lack or lapse of judgment, sin is a perpetual state of war against God. Where we are in essence in moments in time, maybe for seasons, maybe as a habit of our life, demonstrating to God we ultimately don't care what you say. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own kings. We want to live by our own rules. And so punishment, wrath, judgment, isn't for doing something. Punishment, judgment, is for being something. It's for being a rebel against God. That's why salvation isn't about being redeemed from actions, but is instead about being made into an entirely new creature by the mercy of Christ. It's to be moved from being a rebel to being a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is why the angel and the altar cry out that God was justified for doing what he did. Mankind has declared war on God. We have thrown off his rules time and time again in the created order and ultimately in our in our. Uh, experience through the message of the gospel has shown us that he longs to be at peace with us. But the time for mercy, the time for receiving Christ will one day pass, and when it does, mankind will be so steeped in their rebellion, their warring state against God, that they remain in that warring state against God until their last breath. That's what this next enigmatic section of the book of Revelation is all about. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters were dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw uh, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, and For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then we believe Christ speaks here. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then John picks it back up again and says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Once again, John is being given a vision for the future by looking to Israel's past, and there's a lot of Old Testament imagery that pops up here. For instance... The idea of of the kings of the east coming by way of the Euphrates is a reference in their mind to how God brought judgment from the kingdom to the east Babylon on the people of God, Israel, when they were entrenched in their rebellion against God, refusing to obey the covenant that he Had given them. And then, of course, if you're familiar with the plagues of Egypt, you know that one of those plagues was frogs. And so we see that popping out here. And then in the word, which gets all the press in what I just read, Armageddon, there is actually a reference back to a period of time recorded for us, I believe, in the book of Judges where the people of God felt like all hope was over. This little fledgling, uh, recently tribal nation couldn't hold off their oppressors. It looked like all was lost. They gathered for a decisive battle on the plain of Megiddo, which is in the Greek New Testament, Armageddon, and then God in his mercy and in his greatness, rescues them from the slaughter, turning the tables. Now, the battle of Armageddon has this kind of mythic hold on both believer and skeptic alike. It fills us with visions of this climactic battle. So what we get in our minds is this idea that uh, everybody's tried to pinpoint their target. So Jesus is going to come from that way. And so everybody gets together and they get their tanks and their nuclear arsenals and they're just going to fling stuff at Jesus. We have this idea that there's going to be a real military battle. But bear in mind again, all of these things are images which are meant to communicate a truth but aren't necessarily literally being manifested. So I do not believe that there will be a military battle... Where the world tries to stick it to God. What I believe we are being talked about here is that there will come at the end of time a climactic. of great spiritual deception where all of the generalized anger and throwing off God from all cultures will be directed to the God of Abraham, will be directed against the church which bears the name of Jesus Christ and they will deceive and do everything possible to come to a final battle with the church and be rid of them forever. That is, is what is being talked about. But remember where we started. A song of deliverance on the other side of the sea. Here we get to the end and that deliverance takes place. The seventh bowl. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, "'It is done.'" And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and great, tribula- and great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon represents a world order opposed to God. So every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. What we just read about will be described in more detail next week. The interlude following the sevens here provides in greater detail the actual judgment of the world order, chapters 17 through 19. Again, we'll look at that next, next week. But, but in summary, a world order, what we've seen here, a world order arrayed against God and his people has been defeated because the true king has returned. And I wonder if you noted how that defeat was described. When John records the last words of Christ in his gospel that bears his name, the gospel of John. He tells us that Christ said, it is finished. Meaning that Christ had completed God's will and his suffering, the wrath of God against sin, was complete and there was no more. The other gospel writers tell us that when Christ died, there were great signs, darkness, that the earth quaked, that there was a splitting In Jerusalem, the splitting of the veil of the temple which separated the altar where God was believed, remember, to have set up his throne and to meet with people. And the outer court, because it was no longer needed, the meeting place for the people to meet with God was now the cross of Jesus Christ. This, we are told, is what judgment on sin looks like if there's a substitute. This is what judgment of sin looks like if there is a cross, if the wrath of God has been fully satisfied in Jesus. But the verses we just read show us what judgment looks like without a cross, what wrath against sin looks like without a substitute. It is done, is the cry. And the earth quakes and the world is ripped and the people of earth have no shelter, they curse God. The world, arrayed against God and against His people, finally are utterly and completely destroyed and undone. It's been depressing preaching this stuff for the last several weeks. I mean, I, you've got to have felt it. I mean, it, it's just depressing. And knowing now that we are at the end and knowing that the world finally is, is getting, you know, what comes to it uh, can cause people to go, yippee, yay. But should we? Should we be excited about what we've read here. Now, let's be honest. I mean, part of what drives the the plot point of the book of Revelation has been God's people asking God, how long until you do something? And as we've just seen, God has done it, and He's been justified in doing what He does at the end. But having seen it today, in its personal effects, should we be excited? I've, I think sometimes we are. When when I was in my first church, I'll just never forget it. I've shared it with you before, but it's just, it had such a profound impact on, uh, on what I felt like the church needed to grasp. When I was preaching in my little rural church in Tennessee, I was waxing eloquent. I wasn't, but I thought I was. I was waxing eloquent about one of those groups of people that Christians are taught to kind of you know, shake their fist at and when I said at the end of that little rhetorical flourish and if they do not repent of their sins they will be judged eternally in hell the church roared amen and I had a moment where I was taken aback and I thought to myself why are you excited about people let's just make it clear I just said people were going to hell and you said yay Should that be something that causes us to get excited? I I want to do a little exercise, a little silent, simple thought exercise as we close out today. I want you right now to think about someone you really care about, who you know not to be a believer. I want you to get their face in your mind, their name in your mind, maybe a worker, co-worker, a, a classmate, a neighbor, For some of us, it's probably a family member. I want you to fix their face in your mind. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to read some verses from chapter 16. And when I ask you to, I want you to silently insert their name when I ask you to. Not out loud, just silently insert their name. I want to ask you to, and then let's just step back and see how we feel. Verse 2 of chapter 16. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped the image. I want you to insert the name of your friend after the words, harmful and painful sores came upon, insert their name. Let's do it again. Let's jump to verse 6. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what, insert their name, deserve. Let's look at verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch, insert their name, with fire. Let's do one more. Look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Insert their name, gnawed their tongues in anguish. Anybody fist pump that? Anybody amen that? Of course not. Why did I ask us to do this? To underscore the one point of this message. Here it is. Without the cross, there is no hope. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Remember what I said earlier. This passage teaches us what it's like to hear the words, it is done without a substitute. What is that like? The world unravels, everyone dies, the end. Without the cross, there is no hope. But there is a cross, isn't there? And it's not yet too late. And the means by which the message of the cross is meant to be carried, guess what, is you. It is not the job of religious professionals. It is not the job of other people who have been saved longer than you. The job of carrying the only message of hope that can keep people from the end is you. You are the plan. And you'll say, well, I'm just praying for an open door. I've said this before. I'll say it again. If you know their name, you've got your open door. That's your open door. And you say, well, I don't know anybody who's lost. Then get out more. We are put here and left here not to whine that the world's coming to get us, But to be the signal flare in the darkness of the world that all is lost without Jesus. Listen, folks, the world unravels, everyone dies, the end without the cross. You have no other task that is more important. The church has no other task that is more pressing than making sure that our world knows that they do not have to face the wrath of God without a substitute because it's been provided, his name is Jesus, and he is the only hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.